every single niche has its own little power law, right? It used to be the giant power law where everything was on ABC and CBS and whatever, but now it's all fragmented in all these And if you can, through good work, get at the top of your tiny niche, I think that's going to be incredibly valuable because the absolute number of people may be small, but the intensity uh, and the affinity of the relationship with the people is going to be in incredibly high, right? Welcome to The Four Podcast. I'm Chris Powers, and on this show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. I just got done recording with one of the most interesting men on the internet. He goes by Liberty RPF on Twitter and has an incredible newsletter. And he describes himself as somebody that provides exploration as a service. He basically has like my dream job, which is getting on the internet and scouring it for the coolest things and then uh, writing about them. He writes about finance, technology, uh, health, business, you name it. And so one of the most interesting people, the way he thinks is incredible. And today we talk about AI and chat GPT and how that's impacting the world. We talk about our mutual friend, David Sinra, and why his podcast founders is becoming one of the most valuable in the world. We talk about uh, a business, if he had to invest 100% of his net worth, which one he would put it into and why. Uh, we talk a lot about how the new way of doing business is for creators like himself, folks with podcasts, folks with newsletters, influencers, how they're changing how business is done and how they're using their audiences and attention to start businesses, participate in businesses, gain equity, and, and how that is going to be more common in the future. Uh, we talk about kind of the death of a lot of the mainstream media outlets and why their lack of authenticity and you know being genuine is not what people want today. And he has a great quote, escape your competition through authenticity. I think the world is craving authenticity and you'll find in this episode that we cover it a lot. So thank you for continuing to listen and enjoy the episode. The EVs that are hitting the market are not just the Teslas and the Rivians, but there's a price point for everyone. Whether it's the $25,000 Mazda or the $50,000 F-150 electric truck, there will be a car for everyone, not just the eco-conscious folks. EVs will be for everyone, even us Texas folks that were born on the back of a strong oil and gas foundation. EVs are computers on wheels, and when paired with a convenient and easy charging experience, mass adoption is inevitable. Remember to reach out to Zeal Energy if you're interested in adding EV charging stations to your multi-family or office properties. Zeal Energy is spelled X-E-A-L, and to get a free site evaluation from them, contact Eric Roseman at eric at zealenergy.com and mention the Fort Podcast for a free evaluation. And this episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. At their core, Fort Capital is a privately owned real estate investment firm, but beyond that, they are committed to technology and a world-class culture, which leads to a very forward-thinking mentality. Do you want to stay in the know on all things Fort Capital? Be sure to follow Fort Capital on LinkedIn and sign up for the quarterly newsletter on www.fortcapitallp.com. Fort Capital's quarterly newsletter subscribers are the first to receive business and real estate insights, news, videos, podcasts, free resources, and more. I wanted to start with, um, you go by Liberty RPF. How did you come up with that name and what does that actually mean? First of all, thank you for having me. 
Okay, so I grew up in the 90s online, right? The BBSs at first and then the early web. And back then, like nobody used their real names. So to me, it was very normal not to use it. I know a bunch of people, especially in financial websites and all that, for compliance reasons, right? They're using aliases. But to me, it was just like on, on gaming forums and music forums, everybody used the name. And when I was about to create this account, maybe, I don't know, 12 years ago, I didn't know what to pick. So I looked at my, my bookshelf and one of the books had the word liberty in the title. And I thought, oh, that's a good word, right? That, that's, that's, that's a good word to reclaim somehow, right? Because it got politicized and everybody's trying to use it. But the, the general concept is something that is very, very close to my art. I've optimized my life very much for independence and liberty and control over my time and all that. So that's why I picked it. But when I, I went to get a URL, liberty.com and all that was already taken. So I, I had to add something. And one of my heroes is Richard P. Feynman. So RPF comes from his initials. And my, my oldest son, actually, his middle name is Feynman. I love it. Okay. Um, if you had to describe to a second grader what you do for a living, how would you tell him what you do for a living? That's a big challenge because I have a second grader and I'm not sure he understands what I'm doing. What I tell him is that I'm very curious about lots of things. And most people are also pretty curious, but they have to specialize to get ahead in life, right? That's the dominant strategy is to specialize in something and do it all day long. So you become very, very good. So I'm all the way on the other side, looking at 50 different seven, a thousand things, right? And I, I pick the most interesting stuff and I compile them so that these people who don't have time to do all of this, looking through everything, can still look at the results, look at what I found, and hopefully kind of like explore through me, right? Exploration as a service. And at first I was just writing. Over time, it became a podcast too. It helped me meet tons of people and it's a nice kind of flywheel where I put stuff out and then a lot of it comes back to me. Like people point me to other interesting things. I meet interesting people and that, that like I'm, I'm far from running out of stuff to write or talk about my, my list of my, my notes of stuff to write about is, is growing faster than it shrinks. So it's trending towards infinity. And I, that that's my biggest problem right now. I think it's the greatest job in the world. You, you, you call it, um, I think on your website, you call it exploration as a service. You want to expand a little more? Or did you just kind of uh, nail it right there? I didn't come up with it. Uh, 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 this one, I think was David Kim or someone I, I was talking to and that, that they, they, they used it. And I, I just loved it. Right. Another one that someone used was a uh, serendipity engine, right? So it's all about like I have this theory that for most people, their very favorite thing is out there, but they haven't found it yet, but they don't explore enough, right? They may, they may never find it. So I'm trying to kind of help them along. And then like, have you looked at this? Have you looked at that? You know, this exists over there, right? Uh, and, and something may, may strike, strike a chord with someone. And, you know, if I help someone discover their new favorite album, TV show, their next big investment, or just a whole new you know, subculture. Uh, the, the great thing about the online world is that everything is a world into itself, right? There's a channel somewhere where people talk all day long about like Japanese kitchen knives or about uh, every <laughs> single tiny niche as, as a group of very excited and very passionate people. But if you don't know they even exist, you know, that's the starting point to finding your own thing. So I, I'm just you know trying to share what I find. I absolutely love it and I and I resonate with a lot of it. So you've done 400 of these. I'm I'm getting close to my 300th podcast. There's a lot I've learned about podcasting from when I started to now, but you've now written 400 and these are very 
in-depth newsletters. You put a lot of thought and care into them. What have you learned from your 400th newsletter that you had no idea about when you did your first one? My number one rule, the, the, the thing I've learned the most is that I have to keep it fun for myself. If I lose that, if it starts to, you know, if I create a job for myself that I don't like, if it feels like, you know, some kind of obligation, I'm on some treadmill, I have to pump out content that I'm not excited about, I'm just going to quit at some point. And because almost everything good that comes out of something like this is iteration and compounding over time, if you, you know, if you quit, you'll never get all of the good stuff that's going to come out in year five or year 10 or, or whatever, right? Just longevity in itself is a great goal to have because everybody quits at everything way too quickly. Uh, I think if you have 20 podcast episodes that puts you in the top 1% of all podcasts or something like that, right? With Substacks, it's probably similar. And so there's lots of people who could become great, who could build audiences, but because any exponential curve looks like nothing for a long time, looks flat, they quit and they never get to the part where it starts to get traction. So keeping it fun, uh, that's, that's, that's been kind of my North Star. And I was lucky because in a different life, I, I, I wrote daily for a long time. And I think I, I got a lot of bad words out that way, right? Because it's kind of like mileage. You just have to, you just have to do the, the reps. Um, but that part of my life also taught me that I could do it, right? I could just keep going if I wanted to. And this is the hard part too. Most people, they start something and there's the honeymoon period where it's all new, it's all exciting, there's the adrenaline, you already know your next five ideas, right? And so let's go. And then you get over that and now it's just kind of like the grind, right? The, the discipline and the perseverance and the grit and the, sometimes it doesn't work and what do you do and you there's problems and that's when, that's when people quit. So proving to yourself that you can do it is almost more important than being great at the outset. Just even if, if even if you don't do your best work every time, just keep going. And at some point you'll, you'll build up the skills to, to, to get there. While if you start and you, I don't know, I don't know how people kind of, if, if they're too hard on themselves or they have the, the wrong expectations or it's the outer scorecard versus inner scorecard thing. But there, there's a way to think about these things where you have to get intrinsic value from doing it. And it doesn't matter if nobody's reading it or if you make zero sense from it or, or whatever. I love that. People sometimes say why why I keep going with the podcast. And, and my my honest answer is because a lot of it's for me. I, I get to learn and scratch my itch. And it turns out that there's other folks that, that want to do that too. You just said best work. How do you know you've done your best work? Are there times where you walk away from the computer and you're like, damn, I nailed it? And are there times you walk away and you're like, I could have done better? I know I've had that on the podcast where there's some episodes where it's like, man, I could have talked all day. And then sometimes there's ones where I just didn't have my stuff. How do you know as a writer that you laid it all out on the table? Another great question. And as I was saying it, I had a background process in my brain that was thinking like, do you know what you're saying, right? How, how do you know, right? Um, I think there's two things. I think sometimes you can, can you, you feel it that like, okay, this is a good one, right? I'm, I'm more excited about this one. But I also strongly believe that you should always look back at your stuff and think it was crap. If you look back and you're like, oh, I was great back then, it's like, oh, you've probably been stagnating, right? You're, you're not growing enough. You're not pushing yourself. Anytime you look back and you're like, this is better than what I'm doing now, you should probably change something, find a new avenue for growth or, or, or something. Because as I said, any of these processes where it's kind of like compounding something, if your best stuff is behind, that, that means you're you're not on that curve, right? I, I kind of want to move the conversation to 
just like what you're interested in right now. Um, there's probably nobody that I know that knows is, um, has covered as much as you have. And so I just came up with some topics and, and we can talk about any of them. And we are going to get to David Sinner's question, which is, uh, maybe we'll start there. Shout out to David. What is, uh, if you had to invest a hundred percent of your net worth in one company, public or private, what would it be? So the obvious answer, if I want to be a kiss ass, would be to say that I want to own 100% of Founders Podcast. But that wouldn't make sense because, because if I owned 100% of it, David would have no, no incentive to keep doing it. So I believe in re revealed preferences, right? So I could try to come up with something in the abstract, but in practice, my biggest position is Constellation Software. It's a company I've owned for over a decade. I think it's probably one of the companies I understand best. And so I'd feel comfortable like if it was my, my whole thing because, because many reasons, but one of them is that it's incredibly uh, diversified internally, right? So it's one company, but it's actually like, by now it's probably like 800 business units all over the world, like all over Europe, all over North America in all kinds of industry verticals, right? They, they may do software for like mini pot clubs or governments or hospitals or all kinds of stuff. They're very, very good capital allocators. They're very, very shareholder friendly and very aligned. So I, I'd have trouble thinking of a company that, that would be better than that, especially since it's my biggest position, right? So see if I could easily think of something better, I should probably invest in that instead. Um, though I'm sure, I'm sure there are great, great private companies that I'm not thinking of that, you know, if I could invest in them, they would be even better. But, uh, apart from founders podcast, uh, or maybe Ford Capital. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I think it will probably be Constellation. What What, what do you think about Constellation? It, what is their competitive advantage today where they stand or where, from your opinion, they just can't be replicated? So in theory, it's pretty easy to buy a bunch of VMS software company. And for those not familiar, VMS is vertical market software, right? So there's a tiny niche somewhere, very specialized and some small company makes software for them, right? So if you're a school district and you have to manage your fleet of yellow buses, well, someone comes to you and say, we, we've made exactly what you need, right? It's all customized for you, for, for your exact need. And so that type of software is niche enough that the big players don't come into these niches, right? Microsoft is not gonna make yellow school bus software and make a couple of million, like it's a rounding error for them. So there, there's not much competition from the outside. So it tends to be all these small niches where there's usually some oligopoly where the, you know, two or three players maxes are fighting it out. Constellation will often like consolidate the space. And so they have all these tiny moats around these tiny niches. And so uh, that's that's one one of the things that makes them kind of hard to compete with because even if you, you could uh, attack one of these moats, well, they have, you know, hundreds of them all over. And the way the, the, com the company is structured, it's kind of like a fractal where at first it was just like the head office and they were allocating capital, right? So they buy a bunch of these software companies, the cash comes back to the head office because they have no capital needs basically. And so they buy more and rinse and repeat. But then the company got so big that they created a bunch of kind of mini constellations under the head office. So they have these operating groups that are super decentralized and they themselves buy a bunch of companies, right? But now these groups got big enough that they have portfolio managers managing maybe 25, 30 businesses. And so they figure out a way to scale uh, capital deployment, which is the big problem as you get bigger, right? Most other companies would, the, the last thing most like big PE firms or big software companies uh, that, that are acquisitive want is like 
to do 100 deals a year for 5 million each, right? They, they, it's, it's often as much work to do one of these small deals as to make uh, a big 80 or $100 million deal, especially since a bunch of these small companies are kind of mom and pop and they're not super professionalized, right? They don't have investment bankers and books already. Like, so it's, it's tons of trouble. But that's why Constellation wins. This is because they, they've created a process to do this hard work of having these, like they have a, a CMS, a CRM, I mean, with like probably over 50,000 businesses that they track all over the world. And they have relationships every year. They call these people like, are you thinking of selling? Are you interested in that? And this hard work is what is hard to scale and that others are, are having a hard time replicating. And because they buy all these tiny businesses that not many others want to buy, well, maybe they can get a 25 or 30% RRR, right? On, on, on this. Well, if they were trying to scale by buying bigger and bigger businesses, then the market gets much more efficient and now they're getting much, much lower RRRs. So they're getting more competitions. Their model is known. They're, people are trying to copy it, but the hard part to copy is, is the discipline and having like 30 years of base rates for small VMSs in the books to be the best buyer of them, right? To know exactly what you can improve, what what this type of company in this type of niche usually does. So I don't know. I, I feel like they 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 got their competitive advantage the hard way. They they earned them. Yeah. Do do they have a playbook of what they do once they buy a business or is it industry dependent or business dependent? Or do they have like a core set of tenants of when we buy a VMS business, we do these three things every time, and that's what gets us the extra juice. I'm sure they do. They, they try to keep a lot of that secret. Um, I feel they probably have multiple playbooks depending on, on what they're buying. Because another advantage that they have is most companies, um, especially public companies, care very much about uh, what the market sees, right? The aggregate number. Constellation will often buy distressed companies, companies in runoff, and so it, it depresses their organic growth, right? So the market looking at just the whole picture, they, they look at the aggregate of the 800 businesses, they're like, oh, this year they only grew 2%. But maybe they bought a gigantic distressed company for one-time EBITDA, and then they stabilize it and they get a great return, right? Even if the optics are bad. So being willing to, to do things that look bad on the surface, but actually create value, I think is another is kind of part of their differentiation. And so if they buy a distressed business like that, I'm sure they have a playbook, right? They, okay, we have to figure out right size of costs. Uh, maybe the business was doing professional services and selling hardware at basically no margin. So maybe they'll cut that and they'll just keep the, the high value creation software. Sometimes they'll buy great businesses that are growing fast. And I'm sure they have a playbook to accelerate that too. But they, they buy such a wide range of businesses that they probably kind of look into that base rate book that I mentioned and be like, okay, what are the most similar businesses we bought so far? Okay, we have 25 businesses that kind of fit them all. What did we do that worked? What did we do that didn't work? Because that's the cool thing. They Every single acquisition they do, they track it forever separately, right? And so they, they have this huge knowledge base that nobody else has in the space, uh, which is what I think makes them a, a better buyer. And they also promise, kind of like Berkshire, to you know, we'll keep you forever, right? We, we don't plan to do like PE and buy you, lever you up seven times or some, maybe not today with the interest rate, but lever you up, cut everything and then sell you back in five years and rinse and repeat. And because a lot of these companies were founded by founders that kind of care about the business, the employees, and uh, sometimes PE will offer a bit more money, but Constellation feels like the buyer of choice because they're going to take care of the business. Well, if you think about 
what could take Berkshire down, it's almost hard to fathom what could take Berkshire down. And and he's notorious for, you know, he's had some bad deals. Uh, I think a notable one, he bought Dexter shoes for like 400 million or something. And it went, it went out of in business. Stock. Like, yeah, in stock. The I think opportunity cost of Dexter is like tens of billions by now. Tens of billions. If you had to think about like, what is there anything at this point that, that how could Constellation make a really bad decision from, from your perspective, like what would totally throw them off of uh, the track they've been on? Because it is it is a remarkable story. Hmm. I can think of two things. So in recent times, they've changed their minds on bigger deals. They used to mostly shy away from them because they didn't want to use any leverage. Mark Leonard is very, very, doesn't like leverage at all, right? But to be competitive with PE and bigger strategics for for the bigger deals, they kind of have to do like a, a, a deal level, uh, do some leverage at the deal level. So they change their minds on that and they're starting to deploy more capital into bigger deals. And that's always a chance to make a bigger mistakes than before, right? Because if you buy a $3 million company, it doesn't work out. It's like, ah, okay, that, that sucks. We've learned something, but it's it, it doesn't matter too much. It's not too material. But if you buy a $400, $500 million company and you think you can, I don't know, it's this distress and you think you can turn it around or at, at least get a good return on it, but you make a huge mistake or or it could be an external factor, right? Something in the market changes overnight and everything is different all of a sudden. That could be a way that could hurt them, but I don't think it would kill them, right? They, the leverage is, is segregated per these deals. So if it blows up totally, well, at least it's, it's, it's not going too much um, to affect too much the rest of the company. The other biggest challenge for them will be more on the cultural side and the talent retention side. Maybe it's going to be easier now that all of the big tech are doing layoffs and and like the market's not as hot as it was. But I think the war for talent and engineers, like I don't think Constellation was in the best position to pay people as much as they could have gotten elsewhere. And so they probably lost some talent there. Mark Leonard has been very, very good at kind of like uploading the his cultural DNA in the company, right? When I went to the AGM, you can listen to the, all of the, the group heads speak. And it's like, you could be CEO, you could be CEO, you could be CEO, like the, the bench is very deep, right? But over time, right, if, if, if Mark retires, if some of these group heads retires, and there's always the chance that something gets lost in the DNA because it's very much about how they execute the model. So that, that would be where I'm worried, right? If I start, if I start seeing signs that they're they're losing that part of it, that, that that would be most worrisome. All right, let's have a little fun if David's listening to this, because you said I'd buy Founders Podcast, but I actually think you probably meant it. How valuable do you think Founders is um, when you think about Founders and, and getting to know David over the last year has been just a, a treat. And the more I kind of think about what he's building, it's it's a very valuable tool. Like how how do you think about founders? What does it mean to you, and and where do you think this that type of brand is headed? Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, when I, was, I I talked about how the internet is good at eventually finding something good, but it can take a while. Um, I I have a bad sense of time, so I don't have exact dates. But I I, I discovered founders. I don't know four or five years ago. I I'm not sure, right? And I was like, this is amazing, and I kept you know posting on my Twitter about it. I wrote about it in the newsletter and. I, I got these blank stares, right? Never heard of it. Oh, I'll, maybe I'll check it out. And it's like, nobody knows it. And recently it's, it's truly exploded. And I'm I'm super, super happy to see that. And I think it's going to change so many lives for the better because this is exactly the kind of content that 
everybody wishes they could like spend all week reading biographies like David and then, you know, but most people don't, right? And this is the next best thing. And it's even better than just the next best thing. It, it's actually a different animal because by the time it would take me to read one of the books that David has read, David has read like five, right? And so if I get the kind of big ideas of five different books, uh, it's kind of like the 80-20 rule, right? I may actually be getting more than if I'd read just one of the books. But then as I keep listening to David, some of these books are like, oh, this one is great enough. I want to actually read the whole thing, right? So he's helping me pick books that I may not have stumbled on otherwise. And the rest of the time, he's giving me a lot of the value from it. And he's not actually just doing a summary of the book, right? It's not about just like, oh, I'm going to give you the cliff notes. He's filtering it through his own experience, his own his own you know, database of hundreds of books and connections. And now he's meeting like Samzel and <laughs> right? He, he's, he's, he's so deep into the, the, the founder kind of world that he's going to find stuff in the books that I would not find if I read them myself. So he's adding a ton of value. And the beauty of his model is that if something is timeless enough to have a book written about it, then his podcast episode is evergreen, right? So the archive is growing and growing and growing. And so the total value of the archive is, is just going up linearly or maybe more, maybe exponentially because of all the connections, the, the 400 hour conversation that he's having, right? So as, as, as he's saying something in episode 200, well, maybe it makes episode 100 more valuable because when you listen to it with the context of what he said later, um, you know, you get more out of it. So I think, I think he's got a great, great business model, right? The, the, the podcast is becoming more valuable over time. His audience is everybody that wants to build something that 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 from you know a 20-year-old would-be startup founder to I'm sure some 85-year-old titans of industry, right? Everybody, everybody can get something out of it. I, I don't even know why it would be worth it. But because David also understands how how podcasts can be can be businesses, right? So the vertical integration that he's doing, and I, I'm looking at him doing it more and more. The podcast is ad-free, so it reaches the most people possible. But then in the podcast, he's selling some of his own stuff, right? So there is his members-only podcast where he's doing AMAs and, and his quick, um, you know, readwise basically highlights that he's doing. And I'm sure he's going to experiment with all kinds of other stuff over time. Some of that stuff can probably be spun out as other side businesses that he doesn't necessarily have to run, but he's going to be the distribution for it. And so he's going to create a bunch of value inside of founders and probably have a bunch of satellites over time around it. And so like sky's the limit. Uh, like I, <laughs> if I had the capital, I, I'd make an offer, but I, he's not going to sell. And it's, it's, it's so based around his brain that I wouldn't want to own a hundred percent of it. Right. I, 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 I'd be fine being a minority <laughs> partner with him, but he, he, he has to stay aligned, uh, uh, for it to work. So anyway, I know I know that was rambling and all over, but uh, yeah. I love what he's building. I've gotten so much value out of it. And I feel like he's just you know, making the world a better place basically by taking all of that stuff that's sitting on a shelf somewhere inside of a book that's not in the minds of all these people. And all of a sudden he's uploading it, you know, to tens and tens of thousands of people and exactly the kind of people who can most benefit from it, right? Because they're going to be able to apply it in their own businesses just talking to him gets you energized. I mean, it is, it is, uh, he is, he's a joy to, to talk to you. You kind of said you were beating the drum for four or five years saying everybody needs to listen. And then there was a tipping point. And I think you're probably seeing a lot of those tipping points due to what you do where things 
you know, you kind of maybe have an insight that this could be big, but nobody else has caught on to it. Is there any pattern you've seen of what makes something tip? Like if was was there anything that you recognize with David that there was a tipping point or anything else in the world that you kind of saw coming that eventually took on and, and maybe the patterns those follow of of when something's ready to kind of explode? The first thing that comes to mind is at some point, if you put stuff out there long enough, you get a kind of a, a, a core group of evangelists around you, right? And these people do a lot of the work of getting you to the next level. And so I remember when Patrick O'Shaughnessy was asking on Twitter, right? Oh, any good podcast? And then there's all of David's fans in there, right? You have to check this out. You have to check this out. You have to check this out. And there's a lot of choice out there, right? There's, there's hundreds of thousands of creators on YouTube, uh, podcast news. There's, it's very, very hard to cut through that. But I feel if you have a, a core group of super passionate people, like, like kind of like I was about David, who like, I have to tell about everybody because like, this is great, right? I'm, 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 I'm helping you by telling you about it, right? Or if you inverse it, right? If I'm not telling people about it, I'm doing them a disservice because I know how good it is, right? It's, it's the same thing with like, Honest marketing is exactly that. If you know you have something great and you, you're too shy or you, you, you don't enjoy like being promotional, so you never talk about it and you don't push it, you're kind of doing your, your would-be customers a disservice because the thing is actually great. It's actually going to help them, right? So that, that's how I feel about a lot of these creators who they get to a point where it feels like anytime something around that that feel that topic is mentioned, there's always a bunch of people coming out and mentioning them and that cuts through the noise. And uh, Patrick mentioned when he, he did the partnership with, with David, how that's kind of like how he discovered him, right? At first it was like David at his paywall and it's like, it's, he, he had all this friction. It was harder to get him to know, but enough people can keep telling you about it. And uh, David also even mentioned that some of his biggest fans, they bought, maybe it was you, I don't know. They bought dozens and dozens of subscriptions to his podcast and they gave them away to their employees or their friends, right? When you have these types of evangelists around you, something's going to happen at some point. It, it, it can't stay static. Either, it's good. Either you just stop it and it dies there or you break out at some point. Uh, you said using the podcast, but you might be able to do this with your newsletter and you're starting to see it, even the latest news on like Ryan Reynolds, where you're using something that has made you well known and then pointing that attention at other businesses or things that you have equity in. And that's the new model. It's no longer, hey, we're going to get some famous person to advertise our product. The new model is that person's either going to own part of your business or probably start that business. How do you think about that? Are we are we at the very beginning of this shift in how business is done? And And when I think about this podcast over the next 10 years and people ask me about it, I'm thinking so much further along is like, this is the tool that is going to be used as my main driving force for every other thing I do in business, personal, whatever it may be. And you certainly know what that's like with, you know, the community that you've built and what you might be able to offer them and the value that, that you'll get down the road. So how do you think about that from like where we're headed in the business world? I want to say five things at the same time. That's my curse. I want <laughs> to go, go in five directions. I, I think it's super, super interesting. And I think there's been an inflection point a few years ago, but now people are starting to realize it, where, you know, they say that, that uh, CAC is the new rant, right? A customer acquisition costs, right? So 
in the old days, there's three channels on the TV. There's a few big magazines. Everybody sees the same things. You're a big CPG brand. You buy some ad in there. You reach everybody or the middle of the bell curve, right? And that's fine. That doesn't work anymore because everything has you know, fragmented into a million small niches. Getting people's attention is more valuable than ever because it's harder than ever, right? If you advertise on one of the big channels now, you don't reach most people. You may, may, you may not reach the most ideal customers for what you're doing, right? And so if you can find someone who has a relationship with those people, all of a sudden, the attention that they have is much more valuable to you because it's much more targeted, right? It's not the middle of the bell curve randomly where you're talking about cars to 12 years old and yet you're kind of missing the mark all over. If you have an audience that you've, you've earned because you give them tons of value, you're building goodwill with that audience. And so maybe you have a paid product or newsletter or whatever, and you, like, you're getting some of that value back and make a living from it. But I feel like the best creators, they give so much more value than they extract, right? That's why when someone that you like so much as a, you know, a product, right? Jocko Willink is making jeans and boots and this and books and like, you're like, okay, I'm going to pay extra for that. But that's kind of part of the goodwill that they've given me, right? They've been entertaining me or educating me or whatever for years, right? Uh, I'm reading Liberty's newsletter and I feel like he's saving me many hours a month because he's, you know, finding good stuff that I, it would take me a long time to find. Or maybe there's a 10-page article and it's going to give me the highlight in one paragraph. And so I'm saving time. That's worth something to me. So it's building goodwill over time. And maybe... I, I have no plans for that, but maybe if I start something else and people are like, oh, I just want to support you generally, and this is a way to support you. So there's going to be people that kind of are become channels, right? So someone, a third party is going to come to you and say, I want to reach your audience. Let's make a, a deal, right? But the highest use of this is people like, like, like Reynolds or uh, Joe Rogan has done this with like most ads are companies he has uh, equity in, right? And so it's like David's advertising his own subscription podcast. Like if, if, you're, if you're aligned and, and can vertically integrate that, you, you're, you're going to be able to not only create something that's better for your audience because you know them intimately, right? So the third party advertiser may be an okay fit, but it's never going to be as interesting to the audience as if you're like, like, these are my friends, right? I'm going to do something really cool for them, right? So I feel like Jocko, he knows his audience, right? So when he's making like jujitsu gear, like that, that's a great fit, right? Uh, so, and, and the market for programmatic advertising is getting much more efficient. So a few years ago, you could buy a bunch of Facebook ads or something and your app is going to get tons of download and you, you get tons of value. But over time, as, as this, these channels get more and more known, these platforms in the middle are extracting almost all of the value there, right? It's like the rent is rising and rising until you almost make no money. So uh, trying to get to an audience through these platforms is kind of like a, not a dead end, but it's, it's not going to be as good as if you can organically grow your audience, right? So if you're in real estate and you want to talk to people interested in real estate, if you're, what would you do, right? The best way is to build your own podcast and have the direct relationship with, with all of these people interested in the same thing you are. So... I feel like there's a great future ahead for like creators who can like genuinely get at the, the top of the, like every single niche has its own little power law, right? It used to be the giant power law where everything was an ABC and CBS and whatever, but now it's all fragmented in all these things. And if you can like true good work, get at the top of your tiny niche, I think that's going to be incredibly valuable because the absolute number of people may be small, but the intensity 
uh, and the affinity of the relationship with the people is going to be inc incredibly high, right? So, so I'd much rather have, a, as Kevin Kelly would say, a thousand true fans than a hundred thousand random followers, casually interested, kind of, right? That, that that's not very valuable anymore. You nailed you nailed it on the power law, and we can talk about media. We can take it whichever way. But uh, and I was and I was reading some tweets. One on your one was on your website, and just somebody said like I used to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, and ABC or CBS. Now I subscribe to Liberty. You know, whoever, whoever. What are these huge? companies that did have all the power like what is happening to them are they becoming more and more irrelevant by the day and it's just a matter of time before they're done can they reinvent themselves or we've kind of passed the tipping point where folks like you and and david and people that have you know real influence now are just going to start growing exponentially joe rogan you know joe's show does more than all the shows combined all the the, the major media combined so where are we in that world? A lot of media companies used to think that they had great content, but they actually only had distribution. There used to be so much friction, like you need to own trucks and printing presses and relationships with all these tiny retailers to have some shelf space somewhere, right? That was the moat. But they kind of thought that, no, 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 people read us or watch us because we have great stuff. It's like, no, there's no alternative because it's impossible to get anything out there, right? So now they're finding out that well, some random guy with a Substack maybe writing better stuff than some you know big columnist at whatever. So I feel like what's going to happen is there's not going to be anything left in the middle. Either you're all the way on one side and you're kind of like super generalist, super professional, right? You go in there and like you read, I don't know, the Wall Street Journal and they have people covering all kinds of stuff around the world. And that's very hard to do for any single tiny kind of... Uh, independent media thing, right? And so you're, you're going to still have some of that. Uh, and then on the other end, you're going to have a bunch of people that are a lot more, I call it personality-based. So on one side, you have utility, right? I want to read this because I want to learn about this, that. I may get some utility out of it. I may make an investment. I want to learn about some, I uh, read some trade publication, right? That's the utility. I feel like the way humans are wired, we care a lot about the personality side and we lie to ourselves. We say, okay, I read Ben Thompson for the utility. I want to understand big tech. I'm going to make investments. So I read Ben Thompson. It's like, I think 80% of people kind of like Ben Thompson. They find him interesting. He writes about interesting stuff. They've heard him on podcasts a bunch. And so they have this kind of parasocial relationship where they feel like, okay, I know the guy, right? I kind of like him. And so they follow him for the personality with the optionality of utility. And I feel... Like if you're a great writer at The Atlantic, you have to go through a bunch of, of middle, middle man, middle person, right? To get to your audience. And the audience is really owned by The Atlantic, unless you can differentiate so much and be at the top of the pile. So by going out on your own and starting uh, your, your own Substack or podcast or something, well, maybe you don't have the prestige of the great brand. And maybe you don't have the automatic distribution because you're bundled with other writers more popular than you are, so people can find you that way, right? There's there's some advantage to that. But the relationship with your readers is going to be so much better so, and, and direct, right? It all accrues to you. Your work accrues to you over time. And you can build something where, because you don't have someone in the middle taking 80% or, or something of the revenue, you can make a great living, probably a better living with a lot fewer readers that are much more interested in you, right? The affinity and the intensity of the relationship that I was talking about is going to be much more powerful there. And so 
I feel like almost everybody that's more personality-based is going to get out of all the old media and start on their own. And all of the utility stuff, a lot of it will probably stay in these, these big publications. And people trying to be in the middle, trying to like a random substack like me, but trying to sound professional and buttoned up and sounds like a Financial Time article, that's not going to go anywhere, right? That's part of the reason why like I, I write about my family and I make stupid dad jokes and which TV show I've been watching and all that's because that's really what I'm doing all day, right? That's really what I'm thinking about. And uh, over time, if you get to know me and you're like, oh, wait, yeah, I overlap with that guy, right? I, we have similar interests. That's that's a way to build a kind of trust where, because there's an implicit trust, right? When you subscribe to someone, it's like, I'm giving you access to my inbox, right? And so I'm giving you access to what I'm going to think about in the future. That's kind of powerful. It's like following someone on Twitter, right? It shouldn't be done lightly. You're giving someone access to your brain, basically, right? And so I'm trying to build the implicit trust that, okay, I know you enough. I know the kind of stuff you find interesting is the kind of stuff I find interesting. So you have permission to send me stuff right? That's kind of sacred in a way, right? That, that's very powerful. But you can't get there if you're trying to be bland and sound like everybody else. Every seeking alpha writer, it kind of sounds the same mostly, right? So uh, that's what I'm trying to avoid. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, the, the personality, there's the way... And now that we live, like if I read your newsletter and then I go read something on, you know, pick one of them, you don't, you write in a way that people talk and converse. But if you go to the main station, they write in a way that you would never talk to someone that way at a dinner table, similar to a podcast versus a news anchor. Those are such manufactured conversations. Nobody talks that way to each other. Yet for decades, we were kind of told like, this is how you receive information. And now you just go watch Joe Rogan and it's a dude in a hoodie smoking a joint talking about some of the coolest things in the world and everybody can go, I can relate to that. That I could have that conversation anywhere, whereas, you know, pick a, a news anchor. That's just uh, not it's a, a skit. It's not like a real thing. And I think we're living in a world, at least I feel this way. I, I think you do, too, where we are craving authenticity and and people that are genuine at levels that we've never seen before and i think that there's a there's a lot of reason to be optimistic that that's going to continue and and be the path that we take as as a world yeah there's a a, a saying by naval that i love it's um escape competition through authenticity and so what i'm trying to think about who's my competition with the newsletter i don't know who it is, right? Who's going to be more liberty than liberty, right? A bunch of people may be better writers, may be more interesting, may have deeper knowledge in the same kind of type of field that I cover, but I'm not seeing anyone that's doing it quite the way I'm doing it. And I feel like one of my goals with writing, right? And I love when you mention you, you write as you, as you talk, that's the goal, right? I don't know any rules of grammar and I don't know any of that, <laughs> but I, I, I've developed an ear for dialogue over time, right? My favorite show is Deadwood, right? So I feel like if I can, if my newsletter can be like good dialogue, if you could cut and paste it into a Word document without a byline, without any graphics and color scheme that would be recognizable, if I could email that to you and you read it and you say, oh, that sounds like Liberty, like my job is done. Uh, and on the podcasting side, what you say is right on the money, for decades and decades and decades, we've heard, we've heard fake type of voices, right? All the time on TV, on radio, it's all people speaking in a way that nobody speaks. But podcasters allow the real human voice to come back. 
And we've evolved for this. We're, we're sitting around the campfire and we're talking to each other and telling each other stories and making each other laugh and all that stuff. And that's the real human voice. And um, there's some podcasts that I've been listening to for 10 years, right? Like ATP. I know that, that I've had the three hosts talk in my ears for longer than anyone except my wife, maybe. <laughs> and so I feel that I know them on a level that's like maybe deeper than some of my close friends that I don't get to see as much as I, as I would, right? And so that's why when two podcasters that listen to each other's podcast meet for the first time, they already know each other very, very well. That's the quickest relationship that I've ever seen. And it's beautiful because it's fine if it's two podcasters, but when you've been listening to a podcast, even if it's one way, it's still kind of a real relationship, right? You can't fake being someone for yeah, 500 hours over years and years, right? You, you can maybe fake it for a little while, but over time, like you kind of get to know the real person. And that's why I love it when I, when I, 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 I meet or I speak to people like, like David or, or Jim O'Shaughnessy or people I've heard in my ears a long, long time. And then I speak to them and they, it's a, they're the exact same person on a Zoom call. There's no fake persona. There's no, it's not a character that they're playing. It's like, okay, like it was true. Like It's all true. It's really <laughs> you. That's very, very cool. Speaking of authenticity and being you, I'm going to now go to a topic that that is like all the rage right now, which is chat GPT, which is not, which is what now people are using to maybe be the, uh, you know, uh, uh, if they're trying to write an email or try and communicate, now they might be going to this thing called ChatGPT. So I just kind of want to start it with, if you go through a lot of your recent newsletters, you're talking a lot about it. So what is your thought on ChatGPT? I mean, we've just talked about authenticity, and now we're going to something that I could make an argument is not very authentic. You're using some computer's words to now become yourself, which could make a lot of people all sound the same. How do you think about that? It's, I wrote something recently about how it seems very dystopian to me to imagine a world where like your Microsoft Outlook is writing an email for you and the person on the other end has their own AI reading the email and replying to the AI. And it's a bunch of AIs <laughs> sending back and forth a bunch of bureaucratic crap, right? That sounds terrible. I feel like it's a tool that's extremely powerful and it's extremely fuzzy. So we don't know yet what it can do. It's changing so fast that by the time we figure something out, it's already something else, right? GPT-4 that just came out now has a vision, uh, vision aspect to it, right? It can understand text and vision as input, right? So that changes everything again. Like most tools, it's all going to be in how you use it. So if a bunch of like, you know, bureaucrats want to send back and forth crappy emails and memos with it. It's, <laughs> it's going to take something that was terrible to begin with and amplify it, right? It's like, uh, instead of shoveling crap with a shovel, now you have a, a bulldozer. It's more crap, but it's more powerful too. The most interesting thing is when you point that tool in the direction of more creative aspects. And sometimes it's not even about, okay, I, I feel like for the longest time, creativity has been a bundle where you need someone that has the great ideas uh, the, the inspiration, like the life experience that's interesting to others. But if you only have that part, nobody's going to know about it. You need the execution too. And so you need someone who's a great painter and they spend 15 years practicing their craft to become a great painter or a sculptor or a writer, right? All that stuff is very, very difficult. The unbundling is going to happen where some people with great ideas are not going to be able to go to some AI and say, can you execute that for me, please? So when I go in stable diffusion and I, 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 I've done a series of 
digital paintings of lighthouses, right? I love a lighthouse on, on the coast with waves crashing and the rocks and looks beautiful to me. I could never draw that. I, I, I do stick figures basically. But now I've got a bunch of like foam backgrounds that I created. Nobody else has them. They're unique uh, of paintings I made. So it's unbundled that part of creation. Images came first, but it's going so fast that now text is starting to be the next one, right? And so when you go and chat GPT, maybe you write something and you, you tell it like, can you expand on this idea? Can you give me five ideas? Of it, it can kind of help you kickstart some ideas. I think that's much more interesting, this kind of hybrid, than if you go, you go like, please write the whole thing for me, cut and paste. And that's not going to be differentiated. That's not going to be interesting because it's only the execution, but it's probably lacking the the personality side that we were talking about, right? That, that seed has to be there. But like the way I've been using uh, these models so far, I made a bunch of uh, images that I use in the newsletter, sometimes to illustrate some of my, my stories. And because I publish three times a week and I don't have much time, uh, I, used, uh, I, use, uh, I, I, I use an app called barely.ai made by a friend of mine, Trung Fan, and uh, he has a, a co-founder too. And that's kind of a, a front end for, for uh, GPT-4, right? So I use the grammar and correction feature that they have in there. So sometimes I'll cut and paste a few paragraphs and it's going to find like, oh, this word or this sentence structure could be better this way. And I still make the final call. I don't take all the suggestions, but this has helped make me more productive with something that would be more make work than creative, right? So if I can do that part faster, I can spend more time on the actual like reading more stuff, listening to more stuff, getting more ideas, writing more. And uh, hopefully more people use it that way to automate a bunch of low value work, right? A bunch of lawyers filling out forms and templates, maybe they can automate part of it so they can spend more time on the higher value part of their legal practice, right? Making more decisions, uh, giving advice, all that. But like most tools, it can be used, like you can hit someone on the head with a hammer, right? So not necessarily good. I'm just worried that it's not just a hammer, it's incredibly powerful. So this is the part where I'm like, let's be careful because some of these models are gonna be able to, I don't know, do computational protein design, right? You can do a bunch of biology stuff with it. Well, someone with bad intentions can make all kinds of crazy stuff with some of these models, right? So that's the part where I'm like, let's, let's be careful because the power is so great, but the power for good is also gigantic. So let, let's like try to get as much as possible from the, the creative side and the good side and mitigate as much as possible the, the other potential bad stuff. Do, is there going to be multiple places like mul uh, not multiple chat GPTs within the same company, but multiple companies that are doing the same thing? And I'll bring up maybe a, a, a lightning rod of a topic, but, but I think you know where I'm going with it is if you go on Twitter, you, you've seen a lot of this where if you type into chat GPT about Donald Trump, it basically responds like, we can't tell you anything. This isn't a good guy. Sorry, we cannot write about him. Now, that could be true. But what I read from that is, okay, this is AI being uh, made by humans that have emotions, that have thoughts. So then my question becomes, will there be another chat GPT at another company that if you were to type in about Donald Trump is like, he's the greatest guy that ever lived. How do we get to a place where it's like, or do we ever, where there's one AI that's talking for everybody, or will we start to niche down and have whatever you want to hear from the AI, you just go to that chat GPT that's telling you kind of what you want to hear. Does that make sense? I think it's already starting to fragment. I think OpenAI was kind of like first big splash on the on the market, but we're already seeing like there's a, 
a model that's similar to GPT made by Facebook that kind of leaked out, right? They, they were sharing it with researchers for like educational purposes, but someone just copied it and leaked out the torrent of it. And now it's out there. Everybody's running, it's called Llama. It's a great name. And so everybody's running little llamas on their desktops and computers and in the cloud. And they're tuning it differently. They're even uh, through the, the ChatGPT API, they're stealing some of the reinforcement learning that OpenAI did. And they're giving it to this Llama model uh, for like, I don't know, 600 bucks, right? So OpenAI spent millions and millions and millions of Microsoft Cloud time to train their model and then fine-tune it, and someone else can just, by having the two models talk to each other, one learns from the other. So I, I, I feel like there's going to be a ton of these models. Some are going to go run in the cloud with the big companies, right? Google is going to come out with its own. But there's also going to be open source models. There's going to be small models. And this is going to prevent a lot of this one big company having all the control and trying to tell everybody what to think. That's probably going to be the escape valve. And the market is kind of going to decide, right, well, your model has these benefits, but I kind of hate what you're doing over there. So I'm going to use this model that maybe has these downsides, but is, I don't know, more open or freer. Or And, and there's a good chance that um, because there's an alternative, these pressures are going to force some of the big guys to be more open and more transparent about what they're doing. Uh, it's also likely that we haven't seen some of the stuff that's in the lab right now, right? And so NVIDIA just had a big, a conference where they announced a bunch of new models and uh, they're, they're kind of, they want to be a kind of a model foundry as a service. So they're going to offer a bunch of companies like, come with us and we run everything in the cloud. You can upload your company's private data. The model is going to be trained for just your company with your parameters, right? You, what you want it to do, what you, the limits. So this kind of, of infrastructure is going to exist for a bunch more people to experiment with these models that don't necessarily have a lab full of AI researchers but they still have a, a use case for it or they have a, a vision for what the model could be doing, right? Some may create kind of like companions like in the movie Her. Some may create things that are purely tools that just take an input and there's an output on the other side. Like there's a wide, wide range of kind of stuff that you, we can do with these and we're just starting to figure it out. Is it is it by coincidence that all these companies are now starting to release their AI at the same time? You, you, Facebook, I know Google came out with something the other day, OpenAI and Microsoft, or is that just a byproduct of the speed of innovation? Everybody kind of got to that finish line around the same time, or at least where they're releasing these new products. AI has been around for a while, but now it seems like that moment in time where there's a tipping point. It's just like every day one of the big companies is releasing something new. Is that a coincidence? Partly, but I think there's been there there's a difference between the technology and the product. Chat GPT is largely based on a model that has been existing for two years, right? It's it's based on the GPT three line, GPT three point five. There's a few sub models like DaVinci and Codex, but all that stuff it kind of existed, and a bunch of people played with it, and it was super powerful. But until you you put it into a product that most people can just hey I can chat with it, it remembers what we said before. Just make a few product decisions and all of a sudden the same tech explodes and has 100 million users in like a month or two, right? And I think what OpenAI did, they kind of unlocked this product and now all of the other labs are like, oh, we have the same tech, but we can just package it in a similar way and now it, it works, it gets traction. Uh, Stable Diffusion kind of did the same thing with uh, generative visual models, right? And so you had DALI at first like, oh, make me an avocado chair and poof, the image pops up and that's cool, but it was private beta, nobody had access to it. And then Mid Journey comes out and like, 
oh, that's very cool. It's more accessible, but you still have to log into Discord. It's complex. And uh, then Stable Diffusion comes out. It's like, it's open source, do whatever you want with it. And the community builds so many ways of using it, so many graphical interfaces. It's hosted on tons of sites. And now it's so accessible that like, it was the product moment, basically, for this type of AI. And now the adoption went vertical, right? So there's going to be other product moments, I feel like. We, we, we've we done like 10 years, of, well, not quite 10 years, let's say Transformers in 2017. We've done years and years of research on the technical side. We've been growing the models. And now we have to build the kind of Steve, Steve Jobs side of it, right? What's the interface? What's, the, what's it actually doing? How do people uh, get to have a mental model of how it works? Because if you give someone like, hey, go install Python and write you know, command lines about it, nobody's going to use it. But if you, if you do like chat GPT, all you need is a browser, there's no friction. Interesting. We'll kind of come down uh, towards the end here, but I want to... I wanted to ask you, what are three things, or it could be one, two, three things that you're really interested in, that you've been researching, that the common uh, folk would not know exists? Like, are there anything on your list of things to write about or things that are at top of your mind that you go, man, I'm really interested in this, and it's not yet hit a tipping point? These are things that that we, a year from now, if we recorded, or five years from now, would be obvious but they might be obvious to you, given the level of research and in-depth uh, work that you do to find this stuff. Uh, that's a good question. I'm never good with like, what's your favorite album? What's your favorite movie? What's, uh, but one that comes to mind, and it depends where you are, right? So some of your listeners may be like, oh, it's the most obvious thing in the world, but not everywhere, especially not in North America. But I feel like saunas are about to become a lot more popular. Uh, I've been diving into the research and, and Rhonda Patrick has, has done a great kind of uh, summary uh, review of all the science on this, but tracking people in Finland where like everybody has a sauna and some people use it like five times a week, seven times a week, two times a week. And the the amount of difference that it can make to your health is incredible, right? They, for, for big users, they find uh, lower incidence of like Alzheimer's disease and cardiovascular disease by like 40%, 50%. It's, it's almost as powerful as exercise, which, which is probably the best thing you can do. But it's a kind of like a sauna basically mimics cardio exercise, but pretty easy for most people to do, right? There, there's a bunch of people, you may not get them to run and then go on a treadmill or bike for, for a few hours a week, but sit in there, relax, right? And so the aspects for um, sleep quality, uh, there's great... Uh, results for people uh, with depression, uh, mental health. Uh, and, and if you help sleep quality and, and fix depression, well, it's all, it's all tied together, right? If you sleep better, your immune system is better, you're going to be healthier, you have lower risk of Alzheimer's and all that. And so it seems like a kind of a random thing, but if you could give me a pill and my risk of Alzheimer's and cardiovascular diseases and all kinds of stuff, and my sleep would get better and my mood would get better, I would pay a lot for that pill, right? But just I'm, I'm, my wife and I want to build a sun in the backyard now. I literally, it's so funny you say that. I was just on spring break and I was down in Mexico and I was sitting at dinner with a gentleman and he was actually at a different table and somehow we got to talking and he said, you want to know what the secret to life is? And I said, what? And he said, every morning you get in a dry sauna for 15 minutes and then you walk straight out of that and get into a cold plunge for five minutes. I had never done either. I've been in a wet sauna. I've just never been in a dry one. So I said, all right. Next day, I woke up, 
walked straight to the spa, got in that dry sauna for 15 minutes, and then got in the cold plunge after. And it was unbelievable. I did it again that night. I did it like four or five times before I left. Um, so I don't, I can't sit here and say, you know, I've had all these remarkable health changes yet, but I can say there was something about the experience and the way I felt the rest of the day that was mind blowing. And so I think you're onto something with that one because I hadn't heard of, I had heard of a sauna, but nobody had ever told me like, this is the trick to life. And now my wife and I are talking about how we're going to get a sauna at our house. So is there anything else that you're on? I think you number one you won that one is there anything else well i'm sure there are like i'm trying to think recently what i wrote about and this is a small one but it goes back to something we discussed um i've been trying to look around my house at everything i do every day and try to add little bits of fun into these things that i want to do more right and so uh my wife and i cook a lot and so i've been trying to like Okay, we had some some bottle to to pour the oil in the pan, right? And now I got a kind of a squeezy bottle like the chefs have, and it's, it's a lot more fun, right? I got a nice uh, knife, super well sharp. So anything you can do to reduce friction and make stuff more fun that you want to do more of uh, seems like a tiny thing that shouldn't matter, but over your whole life as it compounds, well, maybe you cook five percent, ten percent more because it's more fun, right? And then you you learn to be a better cook, and then you eat heat better for the it tastes better but it's also better for your health all that stuff kind of compounds over time right it's the same with you know you want to exercise well maybe your your home gym uh could be more attractive in some ways right put great art on the walls or i don't know get some equipment that's more fun or, or cooler or like you when you look throughout history at um the way cities were designed or even random artifacts right uh, tools and everything sometimes you go somewhere or during an era and everything is super boring, right? A bunch of Soviet buildings and Soviet cars and clothes and everything is super boring. And you look at other times and I don't know, Italian Renaissance, everything is great. Everything is, is, is colorful. Everything has little details that are cool to fidget with. And so I feel like these periods really got it, right? They got the psychology of things. And we go through these cycles where we forget and we're just utilitarian to the max. And, and I don't know, I feel like this is taking this is making life harder than it should be, basically. All right, my man, this has been uh, an amazing conversation. How how can people find you, um, subscribe to your newsletter, listen to your podcast? How can people get in touch? The best way is probably to go to uh, libertyrpf.com. RPF like Richard P. Feynman. Uh, so libertyrpf.com is the Substack. And the podcast is part of the Substack, right? So it's all in the same place. You, uh, you can click the links at the top and you see the podcast. And that's probably the best way. Thank you very much for today. This was awesome. Thank you so much. I had a great time. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 